Welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Jack Omer Jackman, Bicom Research Associate. With the question of judicial reform and its impact on all aspects of Israeli society continuing to dominate the news agenda, I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Yuval Shani. An internationally renowned legal scholar, Professor Shani is the Hirsch Lauterpacht Chair in International Law at Hebrew University and its former Dean of Law. He's a former chair of the United Nations Human Rights Committee and is currently a senior fellow at the Center for Democratic Values and Institutions and the Center for Security and Democracy at the Israeli Democracy Institute, of which he was Vice President of Research between 2018 and 2022. He holds an LLB from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, an LLM in International Legal Studies from New York University, and a PhD in International Law from SOAS here in London. Professor Shani, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. With the Knesset currently in recess until the winter session, in one sense, we're in a slight lull in terms of the judicial reform in that nothing is currently being actively legislated. At the same time, of course, the protests continue, closed door discussions continue, and most importantly, perhaps the impact on Israeli society continues too. To remind our listeners of where we are, of the intended reforms announced by Justice Minister Levine in January, one, the annulling of the Supreme Court's use of the reasonability doctrine in reviewing government decisions has so far been passed. When the Knesset resumes, the likely priority will be changes to the composition of the all-important Judicial Selection Committee, a committee that Levine continues to refuse to call. Professor Shani, with the social reverberations continuing, especially at the moment regarding the impact on the Israeli military and military preparedness, what comes next remains very uncertain. So let's go go straight in at the deep end and explain for our listeners, if you will, what the Supreme Court will be considering on September 12th. Perhaps you could include some basic information that, that, that many might not have already have, such as what's the process for a court hearing of this kind? Will they hear from witnesses? What can we expect? Okay, so uh, um, indeed September is going to be a very important month for Israeli constitutional law because the court will be hearing a number of um, petitions that uh, could result in landmark judgments, uh, perhaps uh, the most important of which is the petition that is going to be uh, heard on September 12, which, as, you, as you've indicated, and this is a petition that is challenging the constitutionality of the basic law amendment that took away a few months ago the doctrine of reasonableness as far as it concerns decisions by ministers and the prime minister or the government in plenary. Um, this is a very important um, uh, hearing because um, in a way that the, the law which has um, nullified doctrine of reasonableness is the first major law that has been passed as part of this uh, judicial reform or judicial overall. Um, uh, so, so in a way, this is the first major battle over the reform legislation. Uh, but it is also um, it is even more important than that because um, it, it really goes to a very fundamental question in constitutional law in Israel, but also elsewhere. And that is uh, whether an amendment of the constitution 
is subject to any legal limits. I mean, we are quite well used by now in Israel and many other cases around the world to, to see courts striking down laws for violating the constitution. But what happens when an amendment to the constitution is in itself deemed to be highly problematic and potentially incompatible with very notions of democracy, this is something which is more um, more uh, of an uncharted territory uh, in many countries, including in Israel. So, so far, uh, the court has never actually strike, struck down um, an amendment to a basic law, which is in Israel a quasi-constitution, uh, and it may very well be the first time that the court does so. And, and maybe I'll just end in noting that uh, the situation in Israel is particularly uncertain because uh, we do not have um, any uh, constitutional provision that governs how basic laws are to be passed, what should be contained in them, whether there are any limits to them, and in effect, we do have a system by which um, basic laws are passed in the same procedure and with the same majority that ordinary legislation is being passed. So the court uh, uh, in the hearing, I mean, in the judgment that would follow the hearing may not only determine the, the fate of, uh, of the judicial reform, but also uh, would establish the, you could say, the rules of the game uh, going forward for how to pass uh, basic laws in Israel. Before we before we move on to some other issues, I'd like to stay with the, with the basic law issue for a moment. I think some of our, of our listeners might perhaps not be aware that these basic laws, these these quasi constitutional laws, are passed essentially in the same way as other non non basic laws. Does that does such a system have 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 any any parallels in other in other liberal democracies that that, that laws of that kind would be passed in precisely the same way? What's what's what as a as a kind of constitutional comparison, how does how does that work? No, I mean, of course, there are uh, there are very, there are a few countries where you do not have uh, a constitution. Uh, uh, I mean, the UK being one and New Zealand being a, another. And in those countries, uh, courts that have um, a special constitutional status, such as the Human Rights Act uh, and the um, and, and the New Zealand uh, b bill, uh, which is which uh, which uh, is parallel to the Human Rights Act. Before that, in the UK, you had the European Communities Act. Yes, I mean in these countries, you do have uh, special legislation which has special uh, uh, um, constitutional significance being passed uh, in the same way in which uh, ordinary legislation is passed. Uh, but in in countries that have constitutions and uh, the basic laws in Israel um, are more akin uh, probably to a constitution because they do serve as grounds for um, review of legislation and striking down of legislation. In it, There is no precedent, which I am aware of, uh, in which a country that has a constitution does not have a, a special procedure for amending the constitution that is different from the way in which ordinary legislation is passed. So it's, sometimes it is a super majority, sometimes uh, there is a, a more lengthy process, sometimes they, it has to go to referendum or to some other uh, special authorization process. Uh, in Israel, uh, this is quite exceptional that uh, 
the basic laws are passed in the same way as laws. Now, for many years, this was not a major issue because the Knesset didn't pass many basic laws. Uh, and even when it did, uh, it, it applied considerable restraint and tried to formulate broad majorities when dealing with basic laws. So they were not extremely controversial. They were the accepted uh, rules of the game, which everyone subscribed to. But this has changed in recent years. I mean, we are seeing a, a flood of changes uh, to basic laws, uh, dozens and dozens of changes in the last decade. Uh, and also many of these changes are highly controversial and are being voted on party lines. So the rules of the game are being uh, changed all the time. Uh, in order to make the game easier uh, to, to win for, for some specific political uh, elements within the system. Thank you. I mean, if the court chooses to, to intervene on September the 12th, then they will be intervening on one of these, these basic laws. Does that, in your view, prompt a, the prospect of a, of a constitutional crisis in Israel? Um, what, what what does that look like and what are, what are its implications? Well, well, part of this uncharted territory is that since we do not have clear uh, rules on how to formulate a, a basic law, we also do not have clear rules as to whether the court can and on what grounds exercise power of judicial review over basic laws. So this is, again, uh, somewhat of an uncharted territory. I, I wouldn't say that this is completely uncharted territory because there, we already have a few decisions in which the court, the majority on the court, has taken the position that there could be some case circumstances uh, in which the court uh, would be able to, uh, to, to, to strike down amendment to basic laws uh, on two uh, main grounds, one perhaps less controversial, and that's, that is the ground of mislabeling or abuse of um, constitutional process, if, if the Knesset simply takes an ordinary law, which has nothing to do with, uh, with, the, constitution, with the constitution or um, is not really fitting to be in a constitution. Uh, some, for instance, we had cases involving some budgetary laws. Uh, that were very ad hocish in their in their orientation. So calling such legislation basic law just in order to uh, avoid judicial review of legislation that would be abusive. So this is an area where we know that the court has indicated before that it may intervene. Um, the more controversial uh, part, and this is something we've already also heard the court uh, indicate in principle willingness to intervene in extreme cases. That is when a, when a basic law amendment or a basic law uh, runs contrary to the very foundational values of the state as a democratic and Jewish state. Uh, as I've said, we have never had the court actually intervene in such a case. Um, and there are elements, certainly within the political system, but also uh, within the um, within legal circles in, in, in within Israel that um, challenge the very ability of the court to go in that direction, basically saying, well, the court, you do not have the authority to uh, intervene with something that is of a constitutional status. Um, there are others, including the judges themselves, who, who maintain that they do have this authority. And what might happen, uh, and we've already, we already have some indications that this is not beyond the realm of possibility, that if the court decides to intervene and to strike down the legislation or to uh, the, the basic law uh, amendment or to uh, postpone, for instance, its uh, entry into force or read it narrowly, 
there could be elements within the political system that would maintain that the court has acted uh, outside its uh, its sphere of authority. And then we are really, uh, we may end up in, in a constitutional crisis where uh, the court is upholding the law, but the government uh, refuses to recognize the authority of the court in doing so. Uh, and this is, of course, something which is, uh, which is very serious and also uh, gives rise to serious concern uh, in Israel. Just to, just to pick on, up on something you, you touched on just there, does the court, in its in its consideration of this issue, does it have it in its capacity to make recommendations to modify the bill, to to perhaps suggest a restricted use of reasonability rather than the annulling that we that we've seen? Is there a middle ground that the court can can recommend? Yeah, I mean, the court has in the past, uh, in in the one major case in which the question of limits to um, to the power to pass basic laws was considered. Uh, that dealt with the nation-state basic law, which is also very controversial in Israel and beyond, and that is the the law that uh, really underscores the Jewish character of the state of Israel, uh, allegedly um, putting this uh, emphasis on the Jewishness of of the state in tension with its uh, democratic uh, character and also with the principle of equality. So in that case, uh, the court did assert that in principle, it can review the the constitutionality of such legislation in light of the basic principles that I've alluded to. But uh, in practice, what the court uh, said that it, 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 it doesn't deem it necessary to go in that direction because it can resolve the tensions between the language of the law and the other basic values of the system, equality and, and, and democratic uh, principles through interpretation. And in theory, it could uh, do something similar here by, uh, by taking the position that, well, uh, the court cannot review reasonableness, but it can review, it can use many other doctrines to, uh, to, to reach the same um, the same power of review, and therefore the the harm to its capacity uh, is quite minimal. So this would be one avenue that would be uh, available, for instance, uh, to the court, and, and it could uh, diffuse the crisis to some extent, or at least postpone the crisis, because uh, if, uh, if this is what the court uh, would maintain, uh, in theory, the, the government, through its control in parliament, may then pass a new basic law amendment that would take away from the court the other uh, power to invoke these other alternative doctrines as well. That, that preempts a question I was going to ask later, actually, so it would be a good good chance to, to, to look at it now. On reasonability, I mean, how limiting to, to the court in practice is removing reasonability from its, from its purview? What, what are some of these other standards or, or mechanisms that the court has to call upon to, to review the government? Right. So, so I think in practice, uh, there haven't been uh, many, many cases in which um, the court relied only on reasonable uh, reasonability or reasonableness in order to strike down uh, governmental policy. Um, and there are some alternative doctrines which the court can invoke. 
The problem is that uh, reasonableness really goes to something which is quite um, central to um, to the way in which administrative law applies in Israel, and, and I would argue in, in many other democracies as well, and that is the expectation that the government should exercise its authority in view of the public interest and in order to serve the public interest. Uh, the other doctrines that we have on the table could protect individual rights, uh, could ensure that um, decisions were not taken uh, for uh, improper motives, but they do not uh, really capture the centrality of the public interest in, in governmental decision making. Now, uh, this has in practical terms uh, two or three uh, applications, uh, this gap. One is that um, it is quite difficult sometimes to establish uh, which, which improper considerations were actually taken into account. Hence, for the court, uh, having in the background the reasonableness doctrine would go uh, a long distance uh, in the direction of effectively protecting the public interest. So, so sometimes uh, reasonableness is easier to establish, lack of reasonableness, than showing improper motive or that an individual right had been infringed. Uh, secondly, um, we, what we are seeing in the court cases is in the way only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, many of the decisions that um, that are potentially uh, problematic from the viewpoint of the public interest do not really uh, reach the court because government legal advisors uh, tell the ministers um, these decisions would not be. Uh, we would not be able to show that these decisions have been uh, have been taken with a view of the public interest. That we have uh, collected the necessary information, and that this uh, this particular decision would serve um, the public interest. And therefore, when taking away reasonableness, uh, you are effectively not only harming the power of the court; you are also uh, severely undercutting the power of government uh, min uh, government legal advisors to, uh, in a way, structure um, decision-making in ways which would be conducive to the public interest. And then there are extreme cases in which the court does intervene, and uh, especially in cases involving appointments, uh, uh, hiring and firing of um, public officials, uh, where um, reasonableness has historically Played, played an important role, for instance, in cases involving the appointment of uh, corrupt uh, politicians to, to positions of, of, of power and influence, where, where this, the court really um, built its intervention around the principle that um, you did not give, I mean, you, the decision maker that made the appointment, did not give sufficient weight to the fact that the person has been convicted in the past or has been implicated in wrongdoing, and therefore um, it is not in the public interest to appoint that person to a position of authority. So, so I would say that whereas maybe it's not as uh, it's not the most frequently invoked um, uh, doctrine in administrative law, 
it does protect a foundational uh, idea of, of, uh, of administrative law, and that is that the government should be acting in the, uh, in the, in the good of the public, in, in defense of the public interest, with the public interest in mind. And by uh, removing uh, this doctrine, the task of both the court, but also the legal advisors within the government of protecting the public interest uh, will become more difficult. Thank you. One final question on on the on the upcoming hearing. People may our listeners may have have read that all fifteen justices will will be sitting. Why why is that so significant? Well, this has never happened in the history of the state that uh, fifteen justices have been have been sitting in a case, uh, and this is perhaps indicative of the importance uh, which the president of the court, uh, Justice Hayut, uh, assigns to the case. Uh, both in terms of uh, of reviewing uh, the reform legislation and also in defining the uh, the uh, scope of authority of the Knesset when exercising its constitution constitution making powers. So, so I think it's a strong uh, signal to the uh, political system that the court is preparing itself to issue a landmark judgment. In the case, it's also a question, uh, of course, of uh, uh, lending greater authority to that decision. I mean, had the had the had the justice the the president convened um, a smaller panel of eleven justices or or nine justices, there would have been some rumbling as to uh, maybe there has been some manipulation of the composition of getting some of the conservative sidelining some of the conservative justice. By putting everyone on the on the bench, uh, the president also avoids this sort of criticism, preempts this sort of criticism. Thank you. I mean, you, you mentioned court president Payot there. I, I wonder does her does her impending scheduled retirement affect affect this issue at all? Yes, I mean, so Hayut uh, and one other justice, uh, Justice Baron, are are supposed to step down uh, in in October. Uh, they do have, uh, according to uh, our laws, three more months to write judgments. So effectively, the judge, the judgment uh, could be rendered uh, later, uh, later uh, after the retirement, later in the year. Uh, I think this is, uh, of course, this is this is uh, this is important because I mean, one would expect Hayut, uh, who has been very involved in navigating the course of the court uh, in in connection with basic laws in recent years. Um, and also has been uh, a very fierce critic of uh, of the reform. At least initially, she made a very powerful statement against the the reform plan before it was presented as specific bills. Um, it would be a, it, it. I think common wisdom would be that she would want to be uh, very much involved in uh, settling those cases. So, so that would mean as a practical matter. Uh, that the the timeline for reaching decisions uh, would be short. So it wouldn't be a case uh, of uh, going back and forth for years, as sometimes constitutional adjudication takes, uh, but rather we are, um, there will be, if there will be a showdown, it will be a rather a quick showdown, still probably within uh, the year 2023. Um, what's at stake also here is since we are talking not only about reasonableness, but there is uh, there are also pending bills concerning other aspects of the reform, including concerning the appointment of the next president of the court. 
I think that for Chayut, there is uh, there is some degree of um, impetus to uh, deal with the reform legislation before uh, it actually changes the ability of the court to uh, uphold uh, what she, she may consider to be the basic democratic values of the system. So, so this is another reason. So it's not only the fact that she is stepping down from, from the court, her stepping down might actually open the door for the politicians to try to take over the court or to increase their influence over the composition of the court. And I think that she would want the existing composition of the court to, to deal with these challenges and not the next court whose composition we, we are still not certain as how it will look like. Just to stay with that for a moment, what one of the one of the the changes that I think you're alluding to is is that the the presidency of the court would no longer be be chosen by seniority. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean the unwritten uh, rule in uh, in Israeli constitutional law is that um, the president of the court is the uh, most uh, senior justice on the court, namely the longest serving justice on the court on the date of the retirement of the previous president. And that has been uh, a rule, an informal rule that has um, been put into place in order to protect the court from the political, uh, from political vicissitudes and simply uh, introduce a, a very uh, straightforward line of succession. So as not to uh, have uh, basically justices on the court trying to uh, compete over uh, political votes for becoming, uh, uh, for, for, for vying for the position of presidency. Uh, this, I should say that this uh, seniority principle has been challenged in the past. This is not new. Uh, it has been challenged in the past uh, for reasons of efficiency, for instance, whether the president, uh, the most senior, is necessarily the best uh, court leader, the best uh, administrative uh, of official, because presidents of courts also have some administrative burdens. Uh, but at this point in time, it's uh, the fight over seniority is really uh, is really very closely tied to the question of whether politicians should have greater influence over the composition of the court. And uh, at this point in time, much of the resistance to the change is uh, is really framed in is really linked to concerns uh, about uh, broader efforts to politicize the composition of the court. And that, those broader efforts, of course, are, are inextricably linked with the question of the Judicial Selection Committee. In many ways, the, the, the grand grand prize for the for the reformers. For our listeners, this is a committee which which selects um, judges at all levels of the of the Israeli judiciary. We've heard talk recently that that um, Minister Levine and and President uh, Court President Hayot have been in discussion about. A compromise um, between Levine's vision of, of almost total de facto political control of that committee and, and something else. How do you understand those conversations and, and their significance? Well, I'm not sure that the conversations were about a change of the composition. There are uh, conversation uh, always. There there have been conversations um, on the question of who to appoint. Uh, the way the the selection committee um, is, um, is structured is a way that, at least for Supreme Court appointments, 
you need to reach a very broad consensus, uh, which effectively go, gives the Minister of Justice and the President of the court uh, a mutual uh, veto powers. So there has been there have been many uh, cases over the years in which um, both uh, bo both persons uh, entered into negotiations before the convening of a committee. Uh, so that they would get uh, appointments that are uh, mutually acceptable. Sometimes even in the in the uh, uh, they look like um, splitting the baby in half, so to speak. So you would get one appointee which is 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 more acceptable to one, and one appointee which is uh, more acceptable to the other. Uh, to, to the best of my understanding, the talks that are being reported uh, uh, about are um about striking such an agreement about about appointments to the supreme court and also to other um instances where there are uh, vacant seats uh, i'm not sure that the that the that the president is negotiating a change in the uh, composition of the committee she also doesn't have uh, of course any authority in that regard because this is a decision that would be uh, taken by the parliament. This is a Knesset decision whether uh, legislation should be put forward uh, with regard to uh, changing the composition. I mean, a related question on this on the selection committee. Can you give listeners a, a sense of the sort of the scale of the bottleneck or the blockage in the Israeli court system of of cases very slow to start and to conclude? Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the most uh, Orwellian uh, <laughs> parts of this uh, judicial reform uh, or overall is that it really doesn't tackle uh, the main problems of the, the, the Israeli legal system. And I would say that there, uh, the judicial system has two major problems. One is the uh, overload. I mean, it is a completely the dockets are, uh, are very uh, heavy. Uh, the burden on uh, on justice on judges serving in the system is very high. Uh, Israel is, is is ranked very low among OECD countries in number of judges uh, per, uh, per, per compared to the population per, per person. Um, we uh, and of course this is a litigious society, so you get a lot of cases. So, so I think the burden uh, is, is extreme. This this is the number one problem of the of the system. Uh, that going to courts, uh, I mean, if you go with a civil case, I mean, you're looking to three, four, five years of litigation. Uh, and even then, uh, you would have appeals, you would have uh, execution issues. Uh, so this is something which the so-called judicial reform doesn't even begin to address, um, completely agnostic about this issue. Uh, the other issue is uh, diversity in appointments. There have been, uh, and this we have seen mostly in the Supreme Court, where there are some sectors of the population that are overrepresented, some sections that are underrepresented, uh, most significantly the ultra-Orthodox and uh, the, the Mizrahi and the Arabs are underrepresented, whereas Ashkenazi and religious Zionists are overrepresented. And again, the, the reform doesn't even begin to tackle these sort of issues. Um, what is particularly now uh, many Isra many Israelis are very upset about is that Minister Levine not only is it pushing for uh, the, this controversial judicial reform, is also refusing to uh, convene the existing uh, committee, uh, which means that now um, basically in the last year uh, there have been no uh, judicial appointments whatsoever to any uh, court in the land. 
whereas judges are continuing to retire. So we already have dozens of vacant, uh, vacant seats on courts. So the problem of judicial backlog is uh, continually uh, exacerbating. And there is a strong sense that the, that the Minister of Justice has taken the system hostage uh, for his uh, reform agenda. And that is, of course, something which is uh, highly problematic. Thank you. I'd like to change, change focus ever so slightly. As an expert in international law, how much do you think these reforms uh, have or, or will impact Israel's international legal standing? I mean, in a very sort of controversial element, that, do they make Israelis more liable, for example, to fall under the purview of the, of the ICJ? Yeah, look, Israel has been a, uh, Israel is an imperfect democracy, of course, in the sense that uh, it does have uh, within Israel proper um, a democratic system. Although it has even within Israel proper, there are many there are many problems uh, relating, for instance, to equality of women, equality of the Arab minority, etc. But of course, it also controls millions of Palestinians in the West Bank for many years. And um, I think its ability to uh, to regard itself and to be regarded to some extent by external observers and other countries as uh, broadly within the family of liberal democracies had a lot to do with the fact that it had an independent judiciary uh, that was... Um, that felt attached to uh, applying uh, human rights uh, and to curbing governmental power and to providing victims of uh, of human rights violations with some remedy. Again, uh, I wouldn't want to uh, overstate the the court's performance in that regard, but there have been uh, certainly instances in which the court did uh, come through. Uh, with the court being decimated, I think it's going to be a much more difficult task for Israel to uh, to try to uh, present itself as belonging to this liberal democratic club. And this could have also knock-on effects uh, with regard to uh, specific um, legal uh, arenas where such questions really matter on a very practical level. Uh, for instance, in international criminal law, where the jurisdiction of uh, bodies such as the International Criminal Court or even domestic courts in European countries that exercise what is called universal jurisdiction, trying to prosecute war crimes on a universal basis, often depends on the question of whether there is a credible uh, domestic alternative. And to the extent that the courts uh, are being politicized and that their powers are being slowly taken away, I think uh, making the case that Israel is going to take care of these extremely political sensitive issues on its own is becoming more and more uh, difficult to make. Thank you. Uh, an inescapable issue at present is, is the military political dynamic. The involvement of, of sections of the, of the military, especially retired officers and reservists in the, the anti-reform protest movement has led to a current situation in, in which Israel's military preparedness is being questioned and the proper role of a citizen army in the democratic process widely debated. Perhaps you could explain some of the ways this is being played out and, and your own opinion on, on the proper balance in the in the Israeli case. Yeah, I think, uh, I think what we are seeing here, and that's perhaps... Um, uh, 
this is a good segue into 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 observing that the what what's really at stake here uh, for for most Israelis is not the question of the powers of the judiciary. I mean, the powers of the judiciary are important, but they are not really what's at stake. What's at stake is whether Israel is um, continues to be a liberal democracy. Uh, in which um, the state adheres to certain democratic values and that we operate within a limited governance model where uh, there are uh, limits on the power of the government and we apply within a a social contract in which uh, we understand that the government, even the majority, uh, is uh, committed to upholding, to protecting and, and preserving the public interest, which would also include the minority. Once this starts to unravel, once you have a perception of a government that is really not uh, interested in, in upholding the, the public interest, uh, but rather is um, conducting a, a very aggressive policy that it is that is designed to increase its own power uh, and also promote policies which uh, which are are seen as an anathema to uh, a large number of Israelis. Then uh, the social contract, which facilitates um, a people's army, which is heavily reliant on reserve uh, units, and within those reserve units, uh, they heavily rely on volunteer volunteers to reserve, to actually uh, do reserve duties. So there is no legal obligation for uh, many of the. Um, reservists to serve. They do it out of their own free will. Once this starts unravel, uh, then the whole structure um, which uh, which made this possible uh, is also uh, unraveling. And this is what we are seeing now in Israel, that when you have a government that is losing legitimacy in the eyes of about 50% of the population, according to polls, much more than 50% of the population, its ability to uh, to uh, continue and solicit the support of the population, the volunteer spirit of the population, is being very uh, fastly eroded. So, so, so we are really uh, seeing a, a very uh, worrying crisis on all levels. Uh, it's it has to do with the military. It has to do with the economy. It has to do uh, with academia. It has to do with relocations, people who have options looking for other places to live in. So in a way, um, this is a very uh, strong signal that uh, when you push so aggressively a policy that is so controversial, your ability to rely on the pre-existing societal fabric to sustain itself uh, is put into doubt. From a legal point of view, it's very simple. I mean, reservists who are not obliged to serve um, and decide that they are no longer interested to serve uh, under uh, certain policies, they're acting legally within their right. And it's uh, so, so there is no uh, real legal issue here. Uh, there could be uh, there are moral dilemmas as to whether uh, by refusing to serve, you are uh, in a way externalizing costs uh, for the government or externalizing costs for the other population. I think many, uh, th- this is really a question of personal choice. And, and I don't think that people who are not uh, volunteering uh, are in a position to lecture people who are volunteering what they should do or should not do. Thank you for listening to the first part of this Bicon podcast discussion with Professor Yuval Shani. The second part, in which the Professor and I consider other pressing Israeli legal issues, including the ultra-Orthodox draft exemption and the question of prime ministerial conflict of interest, 
will follow soon.